HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. I mean, obviously, it was uh, quite the spread we had, so we had you know, like at least four or five courses. But the main thing I remember was the, the tartare. It was so different. Today is one of the most controversial holidays. It's Valentine's Day. While some people love to show affections through chocolates, flowers, and candy, there are others who like to put their own spin on it or just forgo the celebration altogether. We fully recognize that today might be a little too sugary sweet for most tastes, so we're bringing you a handful of stories that might make you think a little differently about Valentine's Day. We're taking a look at the three main ingredients behind the ubiquitous milk chocolate that sells so well this week, but with a different spin. We've got stories about the current landscape of the dairy industry, the painful history of sugar, and ethical chocolate bars that are made near our home in Brooklyn. Lastly, I've got a personal take on an alternative to the classic heart-shaped box, one that comes from the woods of South Alabama. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. First up, Kevin Chang Barnum brings us a story about a crucial ingredient in any Valentine's Day chocolatey mainstay, milk. He explores the current predicament of the dairy industry and how consolidation led by large companies endangers the business of dairy farmers. We hear stories all the time of farmers who have had to sell their cows um, or people who grew up on dairy farms and the dairy farm has has closed. So we, we definitely see a lot of these personal impacts. That's Bobby Wilson. She works for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and helps organize Dairy Together, a movement to effect change in the dairy economy through measures like price stabilization. One of Dairy Together's concerns is the consolidation of major companies in the dairy industry. And they can continue to pump out more and more milk and produce more volume and still get by okay, whereas the smaller kind of traditional family farm-sized dairies have a higher cost of production and they just can't stay afloat with the low prices that we're seeing. Consolidation has led to radical change in the farming landscape. According to the USDA, There are less than half as many milk cow herds in Wisconsin as there were 15 years ago, even as milk production has increased. 
Bobby shared with me what she recently heard from one union member. He cited that in his area there used to be 30 dairy farms and now there are three. The industry's consolidation is only escalating. News came out in November that the largest milk processing company in the U.S., Dean Foods, was filing for bankruptcy. Soon thereafter, the largest dairy cooperative in the U.S., Dairy Farmers of America, or DFA, announced they were in talks to purchase Dean Foods. That acquisition would expand DFA's already outsized role in milk processing. They are processing a lot of their members' milk directly rather than acting as the the negotiator between farmers and private processors, which is sort of the traditional format or function of a dairy co-op. DFA has been accused of abusing their power in the past. In 2018, they settled for $50 million with farmers who accused them of working with Dean Foods to bring down milk prices. Bobby believes if DFA buys Dean Foods, things might get worse for farmers. People are concerned that if DFA is the only game in town, that they're going to have to accept whatever price and whatever contractual terms DFA is willing to offer. And typically, they're not as as favorable as other, other buyers. The Department of Justice is investigating whether the merger would give DFA too much power over raw milk prices. Bobby says if the department takes action, it could bring needed change to farming. If this is blocked, then it would really turn the tide on consolidation in dairy and across all of agriculture if we're starting to wake up and realize that this is not the most efficient way to manage our food supply, that this is not the best thing for farmers or for rural communities. Even if the merger is blocked, the broader trend of consolidation may continue. Farmers who have produced milk for decades are now facing a future where low prices could make their way of life impossible. If you are celebrating Valentine's Day today, you might find yourself overindulging in sugar. Today, the sweetener is found literally everywhere. But just a few centuries ago, sugar was considered precious, so much so that it was put on display. Ruby Walsh takes us through the history of the sugar sculpture from the courts of the Renaissance to present day. Six years ago, I stepped into the old Domino Sugar Factory in Brooklyn to view American artist Kara Walker's most staggering work yet. An enormous sphinx with the face of a black woman coated completely in white sugar. At 35 feet tall, Walker's A Subtlety, or The Marvelous Sugar Baby, towered over a crowd of mesmerized spectators. Sugar oozed from the walls of the factory, emitting a molasses smell so strong that it was sickly. Once called white gold, sugar was one of the driving forces behind Europe's colonization of the Americas and the enslavement of Africans. America's dark past is, in many ways, inextricably linked to the commodity. Walker's installation foregrounds sugar's brutal history. Through it, the artist pays homage to the millions of black people that were ensnared in the sugar trade. But few people know that Walker's monument echoes the sugar sculptures that were popular in Renaissance courts. I spoke with Tasha Marks, food historian and artist, to revisit Walker's piece and to learn more about how it expands upon the legacy of the sugar sculpture. There's multi-layered histories that happen around sugar and you can either reference the past or you can talk about it in the present. And I think people's relationships with sugar now are very 
numerous and diverse and interesting. Seductively sweet yet dangerously addictive, sugar has come to represent the dichotomy between good and evil in our culture. Today, we know that excessive consumption of treats can cause tooth decay, heart disease, and diabetes. But centuries before it was mass-produced, sugar was viewed as heavenly, a food fit for a prince. So when sugar first arrived in England uh, in the 12th century, it was treated as a medicine and a spice. So we had sugar at the end of the meal, really almost as an indigestion tablet. When sugar started off as a medicine, it's obviously something that's really lovely and people want to eat it. So quite quickly, people noticed the, the ability for that almost as an artistic medium. And this thing that was uh, something that you had as an after course after the meal really evolved into the Elizabethan banquet. And this amazing way to display and show off. Massive, intricate sugar landscapes were created for celebratory occasions. One of my favourites is actually a wedding banquet from uh, 1590. And you've got a table absolutely covered in different sugar sculptures. So there's a castle made from sugar that fires real sugar artillery. Uh, there's sugared animals. There's like exotic animals like uh, elephants and camels made out of sugar. There's trees with sugared fruits hanging off them. These beautiful tablescapes were elaborate displays of wealth. At the time, sugar was a coveted luxury. According to Tasha, sugar has always been loaded with symbolic importance. Whiteness and in terms of food has always been sort of linked in ways to sort of purity and, I guess, class and status. Um, so white bread, you know, in the same way as white sugar used to be something that was highly prized. And now I would say it's the reverse. You know, we pay more for these lovely dark Muscovado sugars and we pay more for really nice green granary breads. Um, so it's interesting. It was a marker of status as opposed to mainly a taste thing. And when it comes to sculpture or sugar sculpture, I guess the white sugar, in a way, it's a bit like marble or, or plaster or porcelain. You know, man, many of these things which then are found in other art forms and other more permanent mediums. Sugar sculpting may have been born out of European opulence, but Walker took this form and turned it on its head. Her work shines a light on colonial structures, revealing the dark underbelly of sugar and race relations in our country. It is a monumental work which consists of a central female sphinx-like figure with a black woman's face. And that figure is in this pure white, and it is absolutely huge. It's probably about four stories high. And surrounding that figure are smaller figures made from solid sugar and a dark sugar, almost like a molasses. So there's a really interesting contrast between the black and white um, and these different forms and different figures in the space but incredibly imposing and incredibly strong. Walker's monument has exaggerated features, gesturing to the racist mammy caricatures that pervade popular culture. But it also depicts a powerful, mythicized female creature. Walker's choice of the sort of Sphinx figure is an interesting one, because this reference to, I guess, civilizations being built on the back of slaves or enslaved people, but also it's a, I mean, Walker's figure is more of an idol than a, than a submissive symbol. So it's sort of like reframing the power. And I think that's something really special and important. At first glance, Walker's sculpture seems to be a send-up of decadent Renaissance sugar displays. But the way Tasha sees it, her work has more in common with the tradition than one might think. Well, sugar sculpture was, you know, this was never something for children or something frivolous. Sugar sculpture was always something that was there as a marker of status and power. You know, dessert was political. And what you had on the dessert table 
said more about you than sometimes you know other markers of success so Sugar really is a storyteller and Kara Walker is really tying into that or to referencing that history that it is political and it is about power and it is about storytelling. To learn more about Tasha Marks, check out her website at www.avmcuriosities.com or her Instagram at avmcuriosities. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, Jess Kreinchich introduces us to Fine and Raw, an ethical chocolate company that defies the conventional and often troubling labor practices used to produce big-name chocolate. Chocolate. That creamy confectionery that's a cross-cultural, intergenerational favorite. But many might not know that the origins of those Hershey's, Mars, or Nestle treats you could offer your beloved this Valentine's Day are not so sweet. Despite claims years ago that these major companies were making efforts to eradicate child labor, much of their chocolate production relies on such labor in West Africa. In a June 2019 article in the Washington Post entitled Coco's Child Laborers, Peter Worski and Rachel Siegel wrote, quote, the world's chocolate companies have missed deadlines to uproot child labor from their cocoa supply chains in 2005, 2008, and 2010. As a result, the odds are substantial that a chocolate bar bought in the United States is the product of child labor, end quote. But luckily, there are companies out there that are dedicated to producing chocolate ethically, sustainably, and deliciously. Fine and Roll is a specialty chocolate brand. What we do is go down to origins, being uh, right now being um, Peru, Ecuador, and Ghana. We'll uh, work directly with our cocoa farmers. We'll bring in cocoa beans, and then uh, we process cocoa beans into chocolate. This is Daniel Sklar, the self-proclaimed mad genius behind the Brooklyn-based confectionery Fine and Raw. I sat down with him to talk about the work Fine and Raw is doing and his optimism for a more ethical future in the chocolate industry. I suppose we specialize in super high quality, very clean ingredient lists. Everything's, it's organic chocolate. We use uh, coconut sugar, so there's no refined sugars, and and, uh, everything we do is plant-based. So uh, in a nutshell, excuse the pun, we're a very high quality chocolate producer. We're a very small, dedicated team who puts a lot of love into what we do. Their chocolates are vegan, organic, and unbelievably rich and creamy. It's both their taste and business practices that set fine and raw apart from the industry at large. I think that chocolate's got an amazing future. Do we have a mission statement? Yes. The mission statement is save the world through silliness and chocolate, and in parentheses, launch a chocolate bar into outer space. It's obvious that Daniel runs the company with a delightfully playful sense of humor, but fine and raw has pioneered genuine change in the industry. 
13 years ago when I started making chocolate, I mean, there was practically no one doing what we're doing. The industry didn't exist. Fast forward to today and, and there's hundreds of small artisan bean to bar makers. You know, back in the good old days, uh, we would have to go to these large uh, international merchants and work through them. And then they would, ha- they would have specialty beans, which kind of was the first step. In, in the in the right direction. And now what we do is we work with partners who are who focus specifically on this kind of stuff. At Fine and Raw, they have direct contact with the cocoa growers they buy from and partner with only those that farm sustainably and pay their laborers fair wages. But how were those relationships established? The first relationship we set up was with another chocolate company, another large chocolate company who th- they went down to Ecuador, met everyone, sourced everything, did all the homework, and then we partnered up with them. And then we have another partner in Ghana who did the same thing. And then we, we just started working with some guys in Peru who um, actually, they were pounding the payments in New York, and I met them at a show here. And I really liked what, how, how their cooperative works. This dedication to equitable labor practices and organic farming drives up their production costs quite a bit compared to what the industry giants are willing to pay. So the commodity prices of cocoa beans are about, I don't know, somewhere like the low 2000s, like somewhere around 2200. Generally, we pay about 4000. So we we pay like at least double, at least double what what the what those guys uh, would pay. We're working with co-ops that are, are doing great jobs and we're supporting them. For an exceptional product and guilt-free supply chain, Daniel feels strongly that it's worth the extra costs. Even the packaging is 100% recyclable, but their sustainable practices don't stop there. Daniel explained that traditionally, cocoa beans are grown under the canopies of the jungle, and with such high demand, deforestation and the use of pesticides are destroying this ecosystem. Sometimes people don't put the two organic and sustainability together in a direct relationship, but organic farming is sort of like the root of sustainability. You know, if you're not looking after the fields and the lands and the jungles and you're using pesticides and that kind of stuff, that shit is not sustainable. Yeah, we're always looking for ways to improve. I think there's, there's a long way to go, but I'm optimistic. Organic farming means a protected environment and a more delicious product. You know, chocolate surrounds us a lot. Obviously, we make it. There's there's something about like the gift of human kindness, I think is important. It's kind of like the most merciful drug that you could ever have. Chocolate's for the soul and it needs to, like the, the experience should really be all encompassing and holistic and like Every part of it should kind of feed you in some way. Taste the difference for yourself by visiting their factory cafe in Bushwick or order online at fineandraw.com. And among Fine and Raw's charitable efforts, they are also a great supporter of HRN and have donated bonbon boxes that we send out as member gifts. If you'd like to support HRN and get some tasty treats from Fine and Raw in the process, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So far, we've covered three ingredients that make up many of the treats we associate with Valentine's Day. Milk, sugar, and chocolate. But with the holiday approaching, I've also been thinking about all those symbolic hearts that take over candy aisles and greeting cards. And the fact that they don't really look much like actual biological hearts. 
For our last story this week, I'm departing from the usual Valentine's Day indulgences to tell you about how Dear Heart Tartar became a symbol of good fortune, camaraderie, and ethical hunting for my brother and me. Our story begins in 2013, the day before the Iron Bowl, which is the annual matchup between Auburn and Alabama's football teams. For those who don't really know the Auburn-Alabama rivalry, it's definitely one of, if not the biggest rivalry in sports. That's my brother Jim. We both went to Auburn, so we're used to having to explain the difference between our mascot, the Tigers, and our battle cry, War Eagle. We're also used to cheering for an underdog football team. And our fans have their fair share of traditions and superstitions to sustain us through nail-biter games. That evening back in 2013, we started a brand new tradition by gathering a group of friends to dine at Acre, a recently opened restaurant in Auburn, helmed by Chef David Bancroft. I mean, obviously it was uh, quite the spread we had, but the main thing I remember was the tartare. It was so different. This wasn't your usual beef tartare. It was made with deer heart. The chef actually came out and explained to us how he had literally taken the deer the week before. So it was something different. I'd never had it before. Um, it was something that I was kind of taken aback by, but I tried it. It was really good. And that's kind of what stuck out to me in my mind, at least. The day after we tried this dish, a pretty miraculous thing happened. For those who hadn't seen the game, go watch it. But we ended up pulling up one of the most amazing uh, games in college football history. We ended up winning. It was more than amazing. We ran back a missed field goal 109 yards with one second on the clock to win the game. We joke later that the deer heart must have had some magic to it. And sure enough, three years went by with no deer heart tartare and three straight losses to Alabama. That's the first time in Jim's whole life we had a losing streak that long. So we hatched a plan. At this point, it's worth mentioning that Jim's been a deer hunter pretty much his whole life. And fair warning, I'll be talking about hunting practices in this next bit. We kind of come to realize that maybe, you know, we should just try it again at some point and see if that was our good luck charm, quote unquote. But uh, it just happened to work out when I was fortunate enough to harvest a deer and lucky enough that the heart was uh, still there. So, you know, I saved it for you guys. When we came down, you ended up actually making it and it was kind of a little bit of a joke. It's like, yeah, same thing will happen again. Um, but if you follow that season, we were doing pretty well, but weren't necessarily favored to win that game. So we were like, well, you know, it can't hurt. So we, we ended up making it, eating it, and then lo and behold, we ended up winning the game. So what makes this weird superstition of ours special in a culinary sense? Well, deer hearts aren't so easy to come by. They can be damaged when a deer is harvested. Also, many hunters just don't keep them. If they do, tartare may not be on their list of dishes to try since it's served raw and it must be made with very fresh meat. I feel like the deer heart tartare thing, while it sounds like a fancy sort of indulgent dish that we've that we made and built this sort of, I don't know, legend around, but also it ties into sort of like using every part of the animal too. And I think a lot of hunters probably that are maybe either new to it or just trying to be efficient, they may be don't use those organ meats, but have you thought about other ways of using the heart or other parts of the deer that are maybe not as desirable as a tenderloin? I mean, you know, probably nine out of 10 of your hunters that take deer and get them processed they're they're not going to use the organ meat or they're not going to use the, maybe the cuts that are a little less desirable, like the roast cut or like the ribs, uh, just because 
wild deer is not necessarily as fatty as you know like a beef cow or something like that so you've got to work a little bit harder to, to get the meat and it's a little bit hard to cook so it turns some people off but i've cooked the ribs before um you've had the roast if you can get a big enough deer so i think there's always a way to try to utilize more of the deer for jim the ethics of hunting also extends beyond making sure to use as much of the animal as possible to me it's it's a, a lot about friendship and the bonds you form while you're out with everyone that's to me as I've gotten older actually is what I see a lot more. Um, and it's kind of what, it, you know, dad, I didn't realize at the time, but it's what dad wanted to pass on to me is the whole uh, bond you get to form with people as you're, as you're doing this thing that, you know, humankind has been doing for thousands and thousands of years and making sure we don't, don't lose that. The friends that you bring down to go hunting with you in Alabama, do a lot of them also have hunting backgrounds or are you kind of like showing them the ropes for the first time? So most of the people I've actually brought hunting uh, don't have any serious hunting backgrounds. And so it's really awesome to me because I've probably helped five or six of my good friends take their first deer. To me, it's, it's showing them, you know, obviously a part of what I grew up on, but also introducing them to, to hopefully like the the gamesmanship and the ethical side of hunting and making sure they're doing things the right way. Um, I mean, cause you know how, how dad is about hunting. I mean, it's, you gotta do it the right way. You're not going to do it. You're obviously sitting normally by yourself when you're hunting, but you know, it's the time back at the house. It's the time eating breakfast. Um, it's all that stuff. When you put it together, it kind of what makes the hunting experience what it is to me at least. Any other thoughts about deer heart tartare or hunting or superstition? Not particularly. Just war to <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Good? Yeah. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to have a little fun celebrating Fat Tuesday with a Mardi Gras king cake adventure right here on Meat and 3. Special thanks this week to Kevin Chang Barnum, Jess Kreinchich, and Ruby Walsh. Meat and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Lead production this week by Nicole Cornwell. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.